Do you love Uncover from CBC Podcasts? What's your favorite season? Which one did you skip? What do you want to hear more of? Help us make Uncover even better by taking our listener survey now. Visit cbc.ca slash uncover survey to make sure your voice is heard. This is a CBC Podcast. A warning to listeners. This episode contains offensive language. Here's something you might remember about blogger and activist Liz Henry. I fucking hate liars. So while the media was in a frenzy about the man behind the gay girl in Damascus blog, Tom McMaster, Liz was thinking about something else. Or somebody else, rather. During the Amina investigation, some of the people who were writing to me on my blog comments and then in email threads and collaborating on the investigation were people who were bloggers for this online magazine called Les Get Real, L-E-Z. Hilarious name, but despite the name, Les Get Real was the legitimate news source. They were trying to cover gay news around the world, which I respected. The blog's editor, Paula Brooks, messaged Liz to tell her that Amina had been writing for them, and she offered to do anything that might help. Paula Brooks was one of the people saying, I know Amina. We have to free Amina. It was Paula Brooks who told Liz and Andy that Amina was logging into Les Get Real, and that she was doing it from an IP address in Scotland. This is what helped lead them to Tom McMaster. Liz is grateful for the intel, but she is a very thorough investigator. I looked up Paula Brooks because I was looking up everyone. So (laughs) I look at her blog called Queen of the Surf Pirates, just a newsy, casual blog about her life as the mom, deaf, deaf capital D, mom of twins, and also an adopted child from Belize who is also deaf. And her surfing dog, Sammy the Surf Dog, who she featured in pictures. I think she had worked for the Smithsonian and also maybe the NSA. Like she had moved from Washington to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And then I think maybe her partner also worked for the CIA or something and then died of cancer. So drama, children, surfing dog, casual chat about what life was like in the Outer Banks. You had everything. Truly everything. She's like a soap opera character. But this wasn't the only thing that made Liz suspicious. The fishy thing about Paula Brooks (laughs) was that whenever there was an in-person Outer Banks bloggers meetup, they were like, we want to meet Paula. She's great. And there would always be a reason why Paula couldn't come. (laughs) And then I realized that all of the Les Get Real bloggers had never spoken directly to Paula because she was deaf. Instead, they spoke to her father, who was named The Major. I'm disabled, and I've been a disability, you know, activist for most of my adult life. I'm not deaf, but I hang out with other cross-disability justice folks. And the idea of a deaf person who didn't use the technology to speak to other people, but instead used a random family member to speak to the outside world at all times, smelled like a non-existent deaf woman to me. (laughs) 
and with other investigators working on the Amina investigation, mainstream journalists from the Washington Post, and the bloggers and writers who worked with Paula Brooks also were starting to have their doubts. As Liz and the other investigators closed in, Paula seemed to be freaking out. Paula Brooks had a very public Twitter meltdown. By doing this investigation, we were detracting from the fight for all lesbians everywhere. We were ruining lesbian media. We were persecuting Paula. But for Liz, that didn't matter. The most important thing is the truth. So she kept going. We found Paula had posted a photo of her father, the major, on her blog. And when we did reverse image lookup, that image turned out to be linked to the identity of Bill Graber, a man in Ohio. I definitely contacted Bill Graber and asked to speak to him. But at the time, I believe also Les Get Real writers and editors were pressuring their co-editor and business associate, Paula Brooks, to come clean. And there was a moment when Bill Graber started to just confess. So it's confirmed. Paula Brooks is a straight, white man. It's happened again. I asked Liz how she felt. Just kind of like a deep sigh of, like, outrage and just not again, just some random dude. Bill Graber, the random dude behind Les Get Real, was 58 years old, lived in Ohio, and was a U.S. Army veteran. And it turns out that Paula Brooks was his wife's name. Bill said in an interview with the Washington Post that his wife had no idea that he had stolen her identity. He'd even taken her driver's license to show to journalists. And that's not all. Paula Brooks, it turned out, had been sexting with Amina. (laughs) So Paula Brooks and, and Amina had a steamy online text affair, which was actually two dudes just making stuff up, I guess. When I do summarize this to people, I just start to, to rant a little bit, and then I start laughing, and then and their minds are blown instantly. And then I'm like, and then Paula Brooks, and then they really start laughing because it just sounds so impossible and ridiculous, and it really was. But Liz says that the Paula reveal was just too much for a community already in shock about Amina. The blast radius was like all the gay Middle East orcs were all suspicious of each other. They were like, well, my God, everybody's fake. If everyone's fake, some of you are probably the secret police and we're all going to be fucked. Seeing this fallout made Liz even more committed to her mission. Because it wasn't just Tom and Bill. Liz also helped uncover other hoaxers. They were often straight white men pretending to be lesbians. You're a bit of a badass. Well, thank you. (laughs) Did you look me up? I did not. Oh, well, yes, I did. I just looked at your LinkedIn. I'm like, okay, you work for the CBC. Yeah, you could have secretly been John Tom McMaster. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I'm Samira Moyedin. This is Gay Girl Gone. Episode 6, The Blast Radius. 
The first time I heard of Amina Arof was reading the BBC report about the kidnapping. Andrew Orr is an associate professor in history and security studies at Kansas State University. He's a real military history buff and the kind of guy I would probably corner at a party and spend hours talking to. And back in 2011, when Tom McMaster's hoax was being blown apart, he was on a research trip in Paris. I was reading papers in the French archives about French imperialism in Syria and other places. I was seeing the Orientalism in the documents I was reading, and this story seemed to resonate with it. Orientalism. It's a word you often come across in academia. The term comes from a book written by literary critic Edward Said. It was published in 1978. It's that thing where Westerners both patronize and exoticize Middle Eastern, Asian, and North African societies and people. You know, like uh, Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book or the film uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Sitting in his Paris office, Andrew Orr thought about the concept of Orientalism and how it applies to this crazy gay girl in Damascus story. At the time, I sort of put that aside, like, okay, this is really weird. And later, I just kept coming back to it, thinking that we should ask deeper questions about this case than what the initial media reporting was doing that they were putting it into this frame about how to do journalism when really this was a window into the way the West was experiencing the Arab Spring. And the, those questions were a lot less comfortable for journalists to ask at the time, I think. The more I thought about it, the more it seemed like a worthwhile research project. Andrew's project would turn into a book titled The Gay Girl in Damascus Hoax, Progressive Orientalism and the Arab Spring. And get this, his book was published the exact same day I started working on this podcast. When Andrew began his research, he knew exactly where he wanted to start, trying to understand Tom. I knew I needed to get a sense of where this guy came from. Where did he grow up? What were his politics? How did he engage with the world? And you didn't speak to Tom no, for writing this no. book. Why not? I made the decision not to talk to Tom um, because I wasn't going to believe anything he told me. But Andrew says that Tom left a lot of breadcrumbs about his past on the Internet. Really good public record information about what he'd been doing before Amina. And that really helped me build a sense of who my subject was in this. I knew he was, at the time in 2011, a graduate student in medieval history. A married, straight, white American guy. We're from the same general generation. So there's a cultural overlap between him and me, both interested in the academy, both historians, both interested in science fiction. There are parts of that blog that make me really certain we were watching some of the same TV shows. That man watched Xeno Warrior Princess when I did. I can see that in the blog, too, in specific places. The thing that quickly stood out 
was just how much of his life he wrote into Amina. Posing as Amina, Tom would write a lot about the American side of her family. Much of that mirrored Tom's own family tree. He even used some of his actual relatives' names in her biography. And Amina was an activist, just like Tom. His parents were anti-war activists. He was part of anti-nuclear weapons protests and anti-U.S. foreign policy protests when he was a child. It continued as he went to college. Where his growing interest was the Middle East. He protested against the first U.S.-Iraq war. He didn't just go to some college rallies against it. The man went to Iraq to meet with Saddam Hussein and his regime's leaders as part of a student protest movement against the U.S.-led U.N. intervention and against the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. He was there in January of 1991, right before the war broke out. He remained involved in anti-war protests, in Palestinian rights protests, as all the way through his time in college and running clear up until the gay girl in Damascus blog. He viewed himself as a progressive, egalitarian man who believed in gender, racial, religious, and sexual identity liberation. And Amina became a way for him to live that struggle for liberation that made him feel like a fully authentic campaigner for equality. Andrew Orr is obviously speaking about Tom here, but I really feel like what he's saying applies to a bunch of the hoaxes we've seen in recent years, where progressive activists have falsely claimed to be from a minority or from a group that experiences discrimination and hate. Like Bill Graber, the guy who ran Les Get Real. Or Rachel Dolezal, who was president of her local NAACP chapter and taught African studies at a Washington university, only later to be revealed to be white. Or in Canada, Carrie Bourassa, a white academic who built her career claiming indigenous ancestry. People like Tom McMaster are extreme examples of how straight white progressives say they care about marginalized communities, but instead of stepping back and hearing their voices, they can't help but insert themselves right into the middle of the conversation. Tom McMaster wanted validation. He wanted his writing validated. He wanted his identity validated. He wanted to matter. The blog gave him this moment where he felt like he could matter. And it's part of why it was hard, I think, for him to step back. Tom had blogged as Amina long before Gay Girl in Damascus. As Andrew researched his book, he examined those earlier blog posts. In 2007, he had done a blog, Amina Araf's Attempts at Art and Alliteration. There was an awful lot of alliteration in that blog's title. In that early version, Amina was a straight Arab-American woman. Why do you think Tom made Amina gay? He kept remaking Amina to keep her at the bleeding edge of social change. 
It was enough in 2007 for Amina to be an Arab-American woman. But by 2011, he needed her to be gay because by 2011, marriage equality was a core concept in progressive politics. And so by making her gay, he made her a better representation in his mind of progressive America. Amina, as a lesbian woman, was edgier and a little bit cooler and more exciting in the minds of the people who read the blog. Reading the interviews that Tom gave after his confession, something jumped out at Andrew that totally also blew my mind. Tom, in his interviews, spoke differently to different journalists. In English, he made an aggressive effort to come across as contrite. But when he talked to a journalist in Brazil, in an interview he knew would be translated into Brazilian, he was a lot less contrite and made a case for how he continued to believe that his work had been beneficial for queer people in the Middle East. The fabulous phrase he used was that Amina had been, and I quote, like a messiah to Syrian lesbians. Oh my God. Oh yes. I could not stop laughing when I read it. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I woke up to find that Andy has tagged me in a thread on Twitter. And I read the tweet itself in bed. Danny Ramadan discovered the truth about Amina from NPR's Andy Carvin. The tweet says thank you to Daniel Nassar at the time, I think. Danny had been using a pseudonym on Twitter and in his interactions with the Western press. And then I went back and it was this long thread like pages upon pages of thread of Andy describing the method of how he managed to uncover Amina being McMaster. Like, I was extremely frustrated, extremely angry, specifically when this white man turned out to be Amina all all along. It was so fucking frustrating. It was, ah, gosh. I personally felt that our story was snatched away that it was used to glorify somebody's sexual desires, genuinely speaking, because he can say whatever the, the fuck he wants to say. It's not about reporting from Syria. It was about him jerking off as he was writing those posts. Let's just be honest about this guy. And I woke up to like a million followers, new followers on my Twitter and, and a bajillion emails from... The Guardian and Washington Post and foreign policy. And I took the day off from work and I just sat in my living room and I was getting email after email after email, a follow after a follow after a follow. It was just a day of me sitting home alone 
answering as many emails as I can. Now that Amino was gone, the Western press latched on to Danny. But they were trying to do better this time. So, <laughs> one of the funniest emails is that I got an email from The Guardian who wanted to ask if I would write about the real gay girls in Damascus. But The Guardian did not believe that I was a real person anymore. So they asked if they can give me a phone call on a Syrian number and see if I would pick up when they call and ask me a couple of questions about the weather in Damascus at the time. And I said, sure. And then I got this phone call from a very, very frightened young woman at The Guardian who was being like, hi, I'm interested in visiting Syria. Tell me, how is the weather today in Syria? And I'm like, well, the weather today is hot and sunny and it's perfect in every way. And then uh, she hanged up and she's like, okay, we now know that you are a real person. I'm like, yay, I'm a real boy. (laughs) Some articles that I wrote were about how angry I was at Tom, about how, how he took our voices away, how he put us in danger. I felt the responsibility of taking on this role because at the end of the day, I had the, the language down. I did a lot of interviews for my friends. I did a lot of retelling of real-life events that happened that lesbian women had gone through in Syria. And at the same time, things on the ground are changing rapidly. A couple of days later, we were hanging out in, in the home, in the safe home, and somebody texted me to turn on the TV channel. So I turned on to the Syria local news, and they have brought up a gay girl in Damascus. And it was such a propaganda thing. They're like, well, look at the West. This man who lives in Scotland pretended to be a gay girl in Damascus to bring sinful attitudes into Syria and spread rumors that we accept queer people in Syria, as well as to lie about the Syrian regime. All of those revolutionists are homosexuals and faggots, and they're all terrible people in every way. And they're all agents of the Western society. And literally, me and the four or five people that were hanging out there, we knew that our time in that safe house was very limited. That now we have moved from our insignificance to become extremely significant in the narrative of the Syrian revolution. And not in a good way. So queer kids who managed to live through the shadows are now under the lights of their families who are watching the news, hearing about those stories. We had radio shows about it. Like we had people who were put on the radio to talk about how they hate being gay and how being gay is a terrible thing to happen and how they're trying to be straight Suddenly, the main stories were about how this and that person who's a rich person got caught in a homosexual act and that person got caught running a sex work homosexual circle and that person got caught who is a trans person. It just became a pastime for our people. For months after the whole situation of Amina, Araf stopped being a conversation for the Western folks. 
So what became of the safe house, the park, the cinema? Ah, gosh. The safe house slowly but surely went kaboot. (laughs) People were, were not very comfortable hanging out in the safe house anymore, so our attendance fell down quite fast. We're hanging out in cars. We would go to meet on the top of the mountains overlooking the city and just sit around and drink and smoke and reminisce about the safe house. Basically, I lost my community. Instead of feeling safe in one space where we can laugh as loud as we want to and where I can like lay down in the arms of the person that I am sleeping with this week um, and just being my queer self, we now have to pretend with the mainstream society. We have to pretend to be something we're not. A few months after the truth about the blog was revealed, something happened to Danny. Something that showed just how real the danger was. So I continued writing during the month after the story of Amina Araf. And I was invited to Jordan to do an event about my writing. And I got arrested at the airport in Damascus. And I can promise you one thing. Nobody told me why. I, I was just taken, thrown in a van, taken to one of their offices, thrown in a dungeon, and left there without a reason of why I was arrested. I was arrested for six weeks. I was in the Syrian dungeons for six weeks. I had a lot of time to think, and I would say maybe it was the articles I wrote, maybe, maybe it's my work for the Washington Post or The Guardian, Maybe it's the safe house that I created. Maybe somebody didn't like me in the newspaper and wrote a report to the government about me. And maybe it's the Amina story. Maybe it is something to do with the fact that I was the voice coming out of Syria to condemn the situation of Amina and try to give a balanced view of what it means to be a queer person in Syria. Before being released, Danny was called into the office of a high-ranking officer. He was told that he was expected to provide information for the regime. So as I was leaving, I was, I was turned into a spy into my own community, and I didn't want to play that role. Can you give me a second, just a second, please? God, I hate this story. (laughs) I didn't even realize I was barefoot until a friend of mine came and picked me up in the car. And he said that he's going to take me to his house. And I said, no, I want to go back to my house. And I said, I don't care. I need my stuff. Danny's friend tells him that his neighborhood has become a battlefield in the past few weeks as the civil war intensified. And I went and I packed my stuff An hour later, I was on a bus to Beirut. And I didn't realize that I left Syria until my friends in Lebanon picked me up in Beirut. 
I was having an out-of-body experience that day. Danny's time in Syria was over. It felt like something broke and, and you can't fix it, right? We never felt like we can go back to the safe house. We never felt like we can, we can be in that safe space ever again. It's, it's, it's like a genie came out of the bottle and you can't, you can't put it back. You just can't. LGBTQ Syrians suffered terribly in the chaos and violence of the government crackdown. In 2020, Human Rights Watch published a report titled They Treated Us in Monstrous Ways. It documents the sexual violence against men, boys, and trans women during the conflict. The report says that if someone's sexual orientation was revealed while they were in detention, they were more likely to face sexual abuse. After all that Danny had been through, he had no interest at all in speaking to Tom McMaster. But Tom knew who Danny was. We know this because he mentioned Danny in an email to Turkish journalist Irem Koker, a week after he gave her an interview. Tom wrote, I have reason to believe that several of the most frequently repeated hurt and angry LGBT activists by the whole matter are not real people either, but are fakes. And one of the people he listed there and made claims about was Daniel Nassar. That's Danny. And he ended his email saying, it's probably worth investigating. The hoax had been unraveled, and Sandra's Italian vacation, the one she was supposed to share with Amina, came to a close. She found herself back in Montreal trying to figure out what the hell just happened. Throughout the story itself, throughout the relationship, I had one or two friends of mine that told me, you know what, this is a really one special relationship that you're actually building. Maybe you should keep the messages, you should document it, you should uh, archive it, and maybe one day it will become something. And I was like, what? What should I, why would I do that? But, you know, some people have premonitions in life. Sandra did document it all. She kept a diary for the first time in her life, and she took screenshots of Amina's blog. Just a few months after the hoax was revealed, she decided to share these archives with a filmmaker named Sophie de Rasp, a friend of a friend. Sophie asked Sandra if she'd be up for making a documentary about the whole affair. Sandra agreed. So I reached out to Irem, I reached out to Danny, I reached out to Andy and Liz, and I started to put all the destination where they were located on the on the map. I just ran uh, a search on Tom um, to just see what he was doing, if he had, you know, shared anything about his life since, uh, since the revelation of his existence. And I was surprised to find that he was giving a lecture in uh, Istanbul. Istanbul. 
Tom would be speaking at a conference about his area of study, the Middle Ages. Sandra and Sophie were going to Istanbul, too, to interview Irem for their documentary. They had already bought their tickets when Sandra realized they're going to be there at the same time as Tom. And I told Sophie, uh, what do we do with that? In a story of insane twists and coincidences, this one takes the cake. What we decided with Sophie is that, okay, let's go without saying anything, without telling him that we were coming. And I was on board because I really thought that the surprise effect was the best effect for him not to actually run away. In September 2012, Sandra and Sophie fly into Istanbul. Irem gives them directions on how to get to the university where Tom is presenting his paper. And the next day, they find themselves on an unfamiliar campus. So we entered the university and one of the first things we asked was, okay, where's the room? And it was a room in the basement and I hear him, you know, through the door. Sandra peeks in and there he is. Tom is at the front of the room, lecturing on slavery in the Middle Ages. And I was like, no, not possible. That, that guy is actually living his life, and I'm just, like, freaking out and having so much emotions over this. And I told her, I, I can't do that. I won't be able to talk to him. It's too much. So we stepped out and I had to walk around and just like take a breather and like, and then my personality is that I'm not gonna waste our moment here in traveling and having that opportunity to talk to him and not seize it. So I just told Sophie, okay, put the microphone on. I'm gonna do it as soon as he steps out, you know. Tom finally finishes his talk. And uh, as he was walking down the hallway, I was walking up the hallway. I can't tell you how much my heart was beating at that moment. I don't know even if Sophie heard it through the microphone. Tom? I think we have to talk. Oh my God. Yeah. That's... I'm sorry. I came... I... Only for you. Yeah. Okay. Fuck That's the writing. I, I'm here. Um. As soon as I actually had him in front of me, no more emotions. I was on a mission. I was like very focused. And I had no intention of giving him one tear or actually making him feel that I was uncomfortable with him. Sandra and Tom sit down and start talking about Amina. She slowly grew from over a 10-year period, mm -hmm. from being this amusing character. And she kept growing and becoming this very likable person. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it's like, I honestly, it's like, she's more likable than I am. Mm -hmm. You know, that she's more fun than I am, you know. And when you have things that, you know, you've written 10 novels that you've sent to publishers, everyone's been rejected. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that suddenly my fictional writing... Is getting here. 
is, yes, my opinions and analysis of the Syrian political situation, which, you know, is being listened to and taken serious. This is so, ex- both, both things being, these were things I'd craved. And I told him, I'm like, okay, well, it's one thing to actually create a persona of an American Syrian lesbian pretending to be in Syria. And there's also the other part of like pretending to be in a relationship and writing as a woman, you know. It's so wrong on so many aspects. The love story was not intentional, which I think is it's one of the, the you know, that like I was expecting this uh, woman in Quebec will get bored of emailing Angela. Or I'll get bored of replying to her and just, you know, forget it. Because, you know, that's what, you know, that Amina has had flirty conversations with, you know, zillions of people. And usually it's like, you know, I'm just bored with this. But the way you try to escape from that and putting me in that situation, putting that fucking media thing on me. This is very hard to explain. And, And when I think about this, I wonder... I wondered, I, mean, I went into a counselor you know, last summer and I was like, I don't know if I'm a sociopath or if I'm schizophrenic or something like this. Actually, a friend of mine made me notice this. He said, you know what? I remember you had doubts. Every time you expressed them, Amina or Tom was coming back and just grabbed you with something more detailed or more dramatic or playing with the feelings and the emotions instead of... Yeah, exactly. Which, so this it was a very uh, conscious, very voluntary I know, I know. exactly, behavior. exactly. But it was at that, you know, when I'm responding... Uh, I mean, it's hard to explain because I'm like, I'm responding as Amina. This is Amina responding. Yeah. You know, Amina doesn't want you to go away. I know, but this is where it's sick. Sandra has another question. Was Tom's wife... Britta, you know, the expert on Syrian studies, somehow involved in the blog? This was something all the investigators had been wondering. Did Britta know you you had Amina as a character? She learned 20 minutes before the world did. We were sitting in a hotel in Istanbul, and we had been called by media, and it was like, there's something you need to know. It really is me. So what, what did you tell her? Like told, what you I said, told her everything, everything that existed, that uh, you, what did she thought of everything? She was just, you know, a little taken aback. Okay, I'm sorry. I need to say, again. And I feel awful about that. Britta actually did give an interview to the Washington Post around the time when the hoax was revealed. She said that she knew Tom had a blog, but she had never read it herself. When she was asked about Tom's relationship with Sandra, she said, Furious does not even begin to describe my feelings. But she said Tom was a good and gentle person. And as far as we know, she stuck with him through what she called the hurricane. But this moment on campus isn't about Tom and Britta. It was two worlds that were merging in front of him in this hallway in Istanbul, I think, that he never thought would even happen. I didn't want him to 
tell me things to express his remorse, to express how sorry or to express how deeply in love he was with me. I was not looking for that at all. I was more, it was for me, uh, mainly. It was a moment for me to just like look for closure and look for a satisfying moment where I could face him. Did seeing him and, and talking with him, did that give you closure? Yes, it did in a way that he was surprised and he didn't expect me to have probably the guts to do it. But And this is the most satisfying moment because I guess he didn't know me that well because this is the type of thing I would do. Today, Danny Ramadan lives in Canada, where he is an accomplished writer. I published two novels, The Clothesline Swing and The Foghorn Echoes. I also have a children's book series called The Adventures of Salma. And my memoir comes out next year. Uh, it's called Crooked Teeth. Crooked Teeth contains a chapter about the hoax and how it was, as Danny sees it, the beginning of the end for his community. There is no way for me to tell how many people were affected by the story of the gay girl in Damascus. I wish there's a way for me to, to, to be able to see the actual numbers, to, 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 to look the Western world in the eye and say, this is what you did to us. This is the harm that you have created with the gay girl in Damascus. Not just on McMaster, but also everybody who gave him a platform. We didn't need any of this. I genuinely didn't need any of this. I was actually living a happy life in Syria. And yes, it was a civil war. And yes, there's homophobia. But I never wanted to be a refugee. I just wanted to be left to my own devices. I wanted to be the simple person that I was back then. And yeah, like, am I much more successful at the moment? Am I much more mature and, and complicated and, 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 and happy at the moment? Of course I am. And, and I've made the best of the experiences that I had. I'm married to a beautiful man and I have a dog, a French bulldog that I call Freddie after Freddie Mercury. A happy, beautiful life. But also that was a happy, beautiful life before all of this. Why, why do you, I mean, I have to be honest with you, Danny. I, I read this blog in real time. I found a comment that I wrote under one of the posts called Pinkwashing Assad. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a comment under it. I wrote beautiful under it. And I recently found my comment, and I really cringed and felt so stupid. But I'm just wondering, for someone like me, who was reading this at the time, what do you think it says about me that I didn't see these fantastical lies? It's an easy narrative, right? Like, the reason why Gay Girl in Damascus became such a popular post is because it's an easy narrative and it confirms your biases. It confirms your biases in a way that also makes you feel good about yourself. Because Tom McMaster was writing what the Western world thinks gay women do in Syria. It was exotic and sexy and intimate, but also these gay women are standing up for the revolution. So he was creating a hero of sorts. So 
I genuinely understand anybody who was born or who was raised in a Western society to believe those stories because those stories, you have been conditioned since the day you were born that those are the stories that are truthful. It's like... um, <laughs> I'm going to make do make a, a fool of myself but it's like that exactly that music does not exist in arabic that music is not <laughs> arabic it's not a type of music that it's just the western version of what music in arabic sounds like if you ask any western person what is the first musical tone that comes to mind when they're thinking of the middle east it will be the Western version of the Middle Eastern music. It's exactly the same thing. Um, Tom McMaster created a Western version of what a gay girl in Damascus is, and it became quite easy for you folks to eat it. Yeah, I ate it up. Mm-hmm. he was aiming at people like himself. Professor Andrew Orr agrees with Danny about Tom's intended audience. He was aiming to talk to generally progressive, well-educated people who were interested-ish in foreign policy, but who weren't experts in the Middle East already. He wasn't talking to people actually lived in the Middle East. He was aiming to talk to Western progressives who might be attracted to the Arab Spring, but might also have concerns about how the Arab Spring would turn out. And all you had to do was agree with Amina to be part of freeing the Middle East. I mean, that's a bargain basement price, and who doesn't like a deal? think that we're doing better today at covering the Middle East, covering Syria, Iran, other places? I do not think that the media really ever grappled with the core problem that this exposed. The Gay Girl in Damascus blog and the hoax is good evidence for the dangers that come when, me- when the media becomes heavily siloed. He was really successful, probably the most successful with The Guardian. Everybody involved, the speaker, the journalist reporting it, and the people being spoken to through the media, shared common pieces of identity. Journalists are human. They're less likely to, you know, dig skeptically into something for confirmation if it confirms something that they think they already know. This story makes me feel uncomfortable because it raises so many questions about how people, including people like me, interact with the world and do our jobs. I'm not smarter than Tom McMaster. I'm not smarter than the people who read the blog live and fell for it. The biggest takeaway I get from this story, that Westerners have an ability to reduce the rest of the world to a performance of our own identity, even as we set about trying to restore the lost voices 
of people who have been silenced or pushed aside by Western power. Maybe Tom really did believe he was being altruistic when he wrote that blog. We just don't know. We did a public record search for Tom. We got a number of email addresses and phone numbers and and tried them all. He finally did write back to us, saying he didn't want to speak and telling us to leave him alone. We also reached out to Britta Frolisher and Bill Graber for comment, but we didn't hear back. I mean, 12 years has gone by. It's a long time. Yeah. Can you describe sort of what, what, what is your life like now? I mean, you're living in Barcelona. I do live in Barcelona now. I have a wife. I'm married. I have a four-year-old son. Um, life is very different. I mean, as I told you, I was reading this blog mm-hmm. also in real time back in, back in 2011. I had a blog of my own, and I started thinking about the role I played, you know, because I shared it everywhere. I talked about everyone I knew uh, about Amina and what she was doing. And, you know, I really admired her, her strength, her courage to, like, live, you know, out loud and, and be proud and stuff. Do you, do you ever sit and think about sort of the role that you played in this? Yeah, of course. I reflected on what would have happened if I didn't take part into these interviews, spreading... Uh, the fact that I had that writing relationship with her. But I don't redo stories. I just, like, you know, live with the consequences of those. So for me, I'm like, okay, well, would I do differently now? Maybe. But do I regret it? No, absolutely not. The reason I was thinking about that is because in Andrew Orr's book, he talks about the fact that sort of so many of us wanted this person to be real. Yeah that we were almost putting our own identities on onto this person. I think he's absolutely right. I think I did put myself also there. I was single. You know, if I had to go back and reading my writings with her, I would probably find that I was naive, you know, that I believed too much. I think I projected myself in many ways through Amina, and most probably I nurtured and made him grow her persona, you know. So, yeah, I have for sure a part in it. Now, what extent? Uh, no idea. But this is how we learn. This is how we experience. Um, I never did blame myself for anything because it was like out of care, out of protection, out of security, out of all of this, beliefs, So, which are very good feelings, Those are great qualities to have as a person. I hope that doesn't change. A lot of people didn't want to talk to us for this series. They thought Amina and Tom had already gotten enough attention, often at the expense of other, more worthy people. And sometimes, while making this series, we wondered if they were right. Maybe we were just giving them more attention. But I think it's important for us to reflect on the stories we believe and the consequences of those beliefs. Twelve years later, the streets of Syria are again echoing with chants against the Assad regime. About 300,000 people have been killed in Syria since the war started in 2011. 
and the Syrian Network for Human Rights estimates that at least 15,000 people have been tortured in government jails. The year that Amina was reportedly abducted by the Syrian regime, a number of real bloggers were. None of them got the level of attention that she did. Here are some of their names. Hussein Gharir, Tariq Bayasi, Mazen Darvish, Ahmad Abu Khair, Razan Qazawi, Tal Al-Maluhi, Rafat Al-Ghanem, Anas Al-Marawi, and Firaz Akram Mahmoud. These people, and many more like them, are not unicorns. Their lives, their pain, and their hopes for a better future are real. Gay Girl Gone was written and produced by me, Samira Moyedin, Brenna Daldorf, and executive producer Peggy Sutton. Sound design and mixing by Jeff Entman. Original music by Reza Mogadas. The Raw production team are Joanne Patterson, Anne-Marie Batho, Rowan Lee Potter, and Patricia Johnson. Fact-checking by Yasmin Bowen. Deborah Dudgeon is the executive producer of Podcasts at Raw, and Georgina Savage is the lead producer. Suzanne Hamilton is the production executive, and Nagina Ahmed is the head of production. Our team from CBC Podcasts includes Roshni Nair, who is our digital producer. Our cross-promo producer is Amanda Cox. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Our podcast art was designed by Natalie Weinberg. Olobumi Lamijula is our transcriber. John Lee is our YouTube producer. Special thanks to Hadil Abdel-Nabi, David Downey, and the CBC Reference Library, and to the National Film Board of Canada for use of extracts from the Amina profile. Ashley Mack is our senior producer. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is the senior manager of CBC Podcasts. Arif Nurani is the director. And Leslie Merklinger is the executive director of CBC Podcasts. If you're enjoying this series and want to help new listeners discover the show, please take some time to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Consider checking out another series from CBC. One I really liked is Bloodlines. It's a podcast about the missing children of ISIS fighters. You can find it, along with all other CBC podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.